Well, good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. My name is Chad. I'm the senior pastor here. With that said, turn with me to Genesis 3. We're going to begin reading this morning, and I'm actually going to read from verse 1 all the way through verse 13. Starting in verse 1 through verse 13, though we'll be looking at verses 8 through 13 predominantly today. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause us to hear your word. We know that as your elect, as your people, the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, walks among his lampstands and speaks to his church through his word inspired by the Spirit and illumined by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that the Spirit would illumine our minds. That we would hear what he is saying to the churches through the pen of Moses. That we would see in the fall of Adam and Eve in the judgment of you, our holy God, our own sin and blame shifting and justifications and hiding. And may we look away from ourselves and to Christ, who is our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, last week, we looked at the fall of man, and I said that in Adam's fall sinned we all. That's not original language to me. I just repeated it. As Adam is our federal head, we are all guilty in Adam. We all deserve condemnation with him. Further, I pointed out that we are all corrupted in Adam. Our bodies now degrade and die. We are from the dust, and to the dust we shall return. We are further born as those who are now spiritually dead, as those who are enemies of God. Our relationship to God, our relationship to our fellow man, and our relationship to the entirety of the created order has been perverted by the fall. Our hearts and minds do not judge good and evil properly. We are like our newly adopted father, the devil, the serpent. You can see this beginning with Adam and Eve. Look at Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now that good for food, she saw, she's issuing a judgment on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The very same tree that in Genesis 2.17, God said is not good for man to eat. That you shall not eat of it lest you die. The woman now gives a perverse judgment of that same tree. She says it's good for food. And go on. And that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Those words delight and desire are from the root for coveting, so that she begins to covet the thing that God has not given her, demonstrating a ingratitude for the things that God has given. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Eve has been deceived. She has been deceived. And she calls good what God called evil. Adam is not deceived. Yet, he offers the same wicked judgment that Eve does. Adam violated God's covenant. Adam called good evil and evil good. And you can hear the coming curse as it's reflected in the woe of Isaiah. You can hear it. Woe to those. Woe is a word of cursing. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Woe to those, listen to the reflection of the language in Genesis, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, and shrewd in their own sight. Shrewd, or crafty, or cunning, like the devil, like Adam and Eve, who became like the devil. And sadly, like us all.
this wicked sin of Adam and Eve did not lead them to be godlike as Satan promised. Rather, it led them into guilt and shame and fear. Look at Genesis 3, 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew. What do they know? Not wisdom. They knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What happens here is that caused them, their sin caused them to be separated from God and from one another. Thus, the nakedness, the innocence... The intimacy they once knew in Genesis 2.25, where the man and his wife were naked and not ashamed, was now lost. They were now alienated from each other, covering their nakedness. And it's not incidental that they're covering their reproductive organs, demonstrating a sort of virtual divorce between them. A kind of violation of the marriage covenant. Adam was now separated from his closest companion. Eve had failed to serve as Adam's helper. And Adam failed to serve as Eve's protector. They were not faithful to their marriage covenant. Even worse, they were now separated from God. Look at Genesis 3.8. Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence or the face of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from God. They hid from his presence. They hid from his face. The trees which once provided God's bounty to them had now become the place where they hid from him. Behold the insanity of sin. The insanity of sin. Sin beckons us. It promises us so much good. And it delivers to us only guilt and fear and shame and slavery and death and judgment. It perverts our hearts and our minds so that we call evil good and good evil. Now, we all know that we are all sinners. We know it. We know it. Our consciences have convicted us that we are sinners by nature and by choice. We see wickedness at work in our own members. We know what is good and what is right and what is true, yet we often choose what is evil in God's sight. Our hearts tell us of God's law, and our hearts tell us of the death deserved by those who violate God's law, yet not only have we done so, but we've encouraged others in their violation of God's law. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. Now, we might sear our consciences as we continue to participate in sin. We just keep doing it so that our consciences stop feeling that nagging sensation and sense of guilt. 
We might attempt to construct fig leaves to cover our sin. We might find ways to hide ourselves from facing the reality of God's coming judgment. We may deny, deflect, justify, excuse, and cover. But when we hear the sound of the Lord God, when he speaks to us by word and spirit, our hearts are laid bare. And you would think, you would think that in the moment that our hearts are laid bare at the sound of the Lord God, we would immediately repent of our sins. But herein is the startling truth. Apart from God's gracious action in saving us, we do not repent. We don't repent of our sins. Rather, we continue to hide from God and harden our hearts. This has been true from the beginning of the Bible, from the fall of man, to the end of the Bible. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Keep your hand in Genesis 3, and look at Revelation chapter 6. And whichever one of our brothers is preaching Revelation 6 tonight, you're welcome. I've shortened up the amount of time you have to spend. Verse 12 of Revelation 6. This is the scene of God opening the seals of judgment on the scroll. The scroll Daniel had been waiting for but could not open because it was not yet the time of the end. And so the scroll would not be opened until the one who was worthy to open it has come. And Christ has come. And now he is worthy to open the scroll to break its seals. And as the seals are opened... And broken at the time of the end, we read this in the sixth seal, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the moon became like blood. That is language we see in the Old Testament prophets and in Jesus' Olivet Discourse that refers to the judgment of God. God has come in judgment, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So here's the judgment scene of God. Now listen. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Do you hear it? These people do not repent as God comes in judgment. They hide from his presence, from his face. Here is the truth about the insanity of sin, about the corruption of our hearts and minds. When we are confronted by our sin, when we begin to reap what we have sown, when, if you will, the chickens come home to roost, when we hit rock bottom, when the Lord confronts us, apart from his gracious action, how we respond is by hardening our hearts through self-justification. 
our hearts calcify in the craftiness of the serpent. And today I want to look at that sad reality. And I want to do so in two parts. First, our holy God coming in judgment. Genesis 3.8 is going to be the setup for that. Now, obviously, we'll see the whole judgment scene in verses 9-13. But I'm going to emphasize our holy God coming in judgment in Genesis 3.8. And second, how man's sinful heart lies like the serpent in Genesis 3, 9 through 13. So we're going to see the holy God coming in judgment and sinful man lying like a serpent. Those are the two parts, Genesis 3, 8 and Genesis 3, 9 through 13. So let's consider the first part. Our holy God comes in judgment. Look with me at Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now I want to note a few details here. First we see, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. Now in his original state, it was man's great blessing. It was man's great blessing to dwell with the Lord God in the garden. In fact, the promise to God's people that runs through the whole of the Bible is that we will dwell with the Lord. Listen to how Moses puts this promise in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. Listen to what he says. I will make my dwelling among you. I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you. And will be your God. And you shall be my people. The greatest blessing man can know is beholding the face of God as he walks among us. If we're his people. If we're his people. Yet look at Genesis 3.8. God walks among them. The man and his wife. Last part of it. The man and his wife and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of The face, literally the face of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They do not see the presence of God or beholding the face of God as a blessing. They don't see it as their greatest beatitude, their great blessing. Rather, they see beholding the face of God, his coming here as a curse, and they fear him. They were once the man and his wife. The last time we heard that phrase, the man and his wife was in Genesis 2.25. They were once the man and his wife who were naked and unashamed. They once knew the blessing of dwelling with the Lord God as he walked with them in the garden. Now they flee from his presence. Now they flee from his face. They hide from him. They know their sin, and they know that the Lord God is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory, and so they flee from him. They flee from him. Look at Genesis 3.8 again. The Lord God comes in judgment, and I want to say they're rightly afraid. 
Let's look at those phrases. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That phrase, the cool of the day, is literally in the spirit of the day. The ruach, the wind or the spirit of the day. I think Meredith Klein has rightly argued that this is not to be pictured as some nice afternoon walk in the breeze, as the Lord's just walking in the nice breeze in the afternoon. No, the Lord God has arrived in judgment, in the spirit of the day, to bring the curse for sin. Adam had violated the covenant, and the Lord God has come to bring a covenant lawsuit. He will put Adam and Eve on trial, much like we see the prophets, where they take the law of God, and then they take the history of Israel. They take the Pentateuch, the first five books, and the law that God places down there, and then they take the history of Israel in in those former prophets or the historical books like Samuel and Kings and Judges, Joshua, etc., and the prophets hold up the law of God, and then they go to the fact pattern of how Israel lived And they prosecute them. Here's what God commanded. Here's what you did. Much like that, the Lord comes like a prosecuting attorney to put Adam and Eve on trial. To question them. And as God does, Adam and Eve demonstrate just how serpentine they've become how much like the serpent they now are. And in doing so, we see our second part. Our sinful hearts lie like the serpent. We lie like the serpent does. Now, I want to set the whole scene regarding the order of confrontation versus the order of temptation and sin. In other words, in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, We see the order of the characters in the scene of the fall, the temptation to fall into sin. We see an order of characters. And then in Genesis 3, 9 through 14, we see the reverse order of the characters. So look at Genesis 3, 1. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. The serpent is the first character noticed in this scene, in this part of the narrative. The serpent comes first, coming to tempt Adam and Eve. Who comes second? Look at the second half of Genesis 3.1. He said to the woman. The woman is listed second. She's the second character in the scene. Now look at verse 6. We'll see the final character in the scene. The very end of that. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now it's implied that the husband is in the whole scene because the you that's used is always in the plural when the serpent speaks if he's speaking to more than one person. And it's implied in the fact that we're told and explicitly stated that he's, in fact, with her. But he's the last character listed. So it's the serpent, the woman, the man. And now we're going to come to the order of judgment. And the scene reverses. Look at verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now go down to verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman... What is this that you have done? Now verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this. And then what's interesting is the judgment will now come in the order 
that we saw of the characters in the temptation and fall. So first the judgment falls on the serpent, then the judgment falls on the woman, then the judgment falls on the man. Which we'll look at the curse, so the curse falls on the serpent, curse falls on the woman, the curse falls on the man. We'll look at that next week. But what I want you to pick up here is the order of the judgment is the reverse order of the temptation and fall, and it's not done unintentionally. Moses is trying to catch your attention. See, the serpent, Satan, is the one who tempted Eve. Eve was deceived. Adam was just flat rebellious. They both rebelled. They're both guilty of sin. But Adam did not sin out of deception in any way. Adam was just a rank rebel against God's command. And Adam is the one who is the federal head of all mankind. Derek Kidner says this, God, by addressing man, woman, and serpent in that order, has shown how he regards their degrees of responsibility. Man is the most responsible here. He is the federal head. God has come in judgment, and he starts with Adam, the federal head, the prophet, priest, and king, who was to speak God's word, obey God's voice, guard the garden, and subdue the serpent, and care for his wife. He failed in every regard. Now, as we consider the scene of judgment, I want to consider first something that's a little bit surprising, which is God's fatherly patience with Adam. Look at Genesis 3, 9 and 11. Let's read both of those verses. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, this is God, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The Lord is not asking as if the Lord does not know the answer to the questions. He is God. He is omniscient. He is asking like a father who is questioning his child, knowing precisely what his child has done. If you're a parent and your children have reached that age, you know exactly what this is like. You know precisely what your child has done, and you know exactly where they're hiding. Yet you say, where are you? And then you ask, have you done the thing I commanded you not to do? He knows precisely where Adam is and precisely what Adam has done. We see parallel language to this, and we'll see a lot of parallels actually with the curse next week and Genesis 4, but we see parallel language with this in Genesis 4. Look at Genesis 4, verse 8, after Cain, where Cain kills his brother. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? It's not that the Lord doesn't know. You'll see this in just a minute. The Lord knows exactly where he is. Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? Again, it's not that the Lord does not know. Look what he goes on to say. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You murdered him and buried him. I know precisely where he is. 
and I know precisely what you've done. Here's Adam's chance to confess his sin. The Lord has come to Adam with a kind of fatherly patience that in the face of Adam's wicked rebellion is breathtaking. Are you ready to confess your sin, Adam? But what does Adam do? Look at verse 10. And he said, I heard, this is Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this. This is sort of an odd response. I was afraid. I heard the sound of you in the garden. Now, the Lord God walked in the garden with Adam and even before. But now I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. And the reason I was afraid? Because I was naked. So I hid. It's odd. Has not Adam always been naked in the garden? Was not that his created state in the garden? How is that a confession of sin? God made him naked. God knows he's naked. He's always been naked. So what's Adam doing? What's he doing? He's pointing to the consequence of his disobedience rather than pointing to his rebellion. It's not, I rebelled against you, so I hid. I was naked, no longer unashamed, but ashamed, and so I hid. Adam is not confessing his sin. He's complaining about the consequence of his sin. In fact, he's already beginning to shift some blame to God who created him naked. So the Lord God patiently continues the inquiry. Listen to how Adam's basically set this up. Listen, you left me here naked and exposed, so I'm afraid and I hid. And Adam continues, verse 11, right after God's question. God says to him, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? God knows he did. Look at verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. This is interesting grammatically because of how he answers the question. The very last thing Adam says is, and I ate almost de-emphasizing that and emphasizing something else. See, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The last thing Adam gets around to is, and I ate. Notice how Adam attempts to evade responsibility. You know we do this. I'm sitting with people in confrontation for sin. Did you do this? And they sit in front of you and they say, well, this person did this, and then they did this, and then they did this, and then they did this. Did you do, well, but they did this, and they did this. Did you do, yeah, yeah, I did it. But it's after they did this, and they did this, and they did this. Did you violate God's law here? Well, see, uh, this suffering came, and I was in grief. That's not my fault. And I started drinking, 
and it became too much. Did you sin in this way? But the suffering came. Yeah, and then I did it. First, Adam argues that Eve is the immediate or proximate cause of his sin. It is the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me fruit of the tree. It's her fault. Second, Adam argues God is the ultimate cause of his sin. The woman whom you gave to be with me. You gave her to me. Then third, Adam confesses his deed. And I ate. And I ate. Again, herein, Adam has become like the serpent. He has evaded the truth, distorted the truth, and attempted to deceive the Lord. Further, Adam has become like the accuser of his wife, hasn't he? He's become the accuser of his wife and the accuser of the Lord. Man has turned against his closest companion, his wife, and against his greatest blessing, beholding the face of God. And Eve follows suit. Look at Genesis 3.13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? What is this that you have done is a kind of emphatic question. He's not asking like, what is this you have done? Give me more information. More like, what is this you've done? Do you realize what you've done? Do you realize the wickedness of this act? Do you know what death and judgment you've now brought? It's similar to Genesis 4.10 when God says to Cain, Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You murdered your brother. And what's Eve's response? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You notice how they keep putting their sin at the last thing? The serpent deceived. It's true she was deceived by the serpent. That's true. The serpent did, in fact, deceive her. Paul comes and tells us that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. That's clear. However, what she's doing is using that truth to blame shift. The devil made me do it. She, like Adam, wants to place the blame elsewhere. And as a result of this, we see the fall of creation in all its respects. The relation of God and man. The relation of man and his wife. And the relation of man and the rest of creation represented in the serpent has been corrupted. This has all happened as a result of sin. As Adam attempts to blame his wife for his sin and then attempts to blame the creator for his sin, so we're also like this in original sin. We blame others that God has put in our lives. We blame circumstances 
that God has placed in our lives. We do anything but take responsibility. If we do take responsibility, it's the very last thing we say after we've made sure to spill most of our words in pointing to others and circumstances. If you walk with Christ long enough, you have seen all too often the claim that the sin someone participates in was caused by something other than their own wicked heart. You have participated in that lie yourself. And you've watched others do the same. We've all attempted to cover our sins with various fig leaves. To hide our sin behind a variety of trees. To blame our sin on God and others. See, this is not my fault. It's not my fault. I've been suffering so greatly from illness and pain or from grief over loss. Did you sin? Yes, but you're not hearing me. Don't you care about me? It's hurtful the fact that you're coming to me knowing that I'm suffering and I'm grieving. Yes, but you're rebelling against God and his holy, righteous law. But yes, but I'm suffering. I'm grieving. It's not my fault. Listen, friends, suffering from illness and pain or grief over terrible loss is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly difficult. I am certain that it is an occasion for temptation to sin, an oftentimes overwhelming occasion for temptation to sin. However, it is not, it is not an excuse for sin. What should horrify you most is not your circumstances, the sin of others against you, the suffering, the grief, the loss in your life. What should horrify you most is that you would transgress the law of your holy God who's given you all good things in Christ. And you should lead with that. You should lead with that. We should lead with that. But I've been suffering from hormonal changes. Those hormonal changes are not my fault. I've been suffering from trauma due to sin against me. Whether natural sin, like a fire if you will, or natural evil, or moral evil, like someone offends you, I've been traumatized. I've been suffering from mental health issues that are hereditary. Again, I know there is real and involuntary often suffering that happens here. We know it's true. People really do suffer from depression. Not depression because they lack faith that you have. Not depression because they're morally inferior to you. But sometimes depression because of bodily causes we don't entirely understand. Charles Spurgeon suffered from depression. He had to go to the south of France almost every year. John Calvin suffered from depression. Martin Luther suffered from depression. There are three men. Martin Lloyd-Jones suffered from depression. There are four men, probably all godlier than you. Suffered from depression. It happens to people. Hormonal changes really happen to people. Some people every month. 
there is real and voluntary suffering that happens. And I am certain that these are all occasions for overwhelming temptation to sin. However, these conditions are still not an excuse for sin. Depression doesn't put sin in your heart. It weakens you so that you're not as able to restrain it. I've been suffering from the disease of alcoholism. Listen, you don't become an alcoholic involuntarily. You understand that, right? But it's hereditary. But it doesn't happen if you don't start drinking, just as a side note. And if you don't drink too much too often. You choose to drink too much too often, and alcohol does not put sin in your heart. Alcohol lowers your guard so that sin might pour forth from your heart. You understand that in the beverage there isn't actually sinful thoughts? Well, the alcohol may. Nope. I suffer from involuntary sinful desires. I don't thank God in certain involuntary sinful desires that are being talked about in our culture all the time right now by his grace. I don't I suffer from other involuntary sinful desires though. See, I don't remember choosing all these desires. They've always been with me. But friends, those sinful desires do not demonstrate your innocence. Rather, they show the corrupt state of your heart and mind. You are guilty and corrupt in Adam. You are not exonerated from sin because you do not remember choosing a particular sinful desire. Rather, you are condemned for sin Because those sinful desires demonstrate your inherent opposition to what is good. Sin is so native to you now that you desire things you don't remember choosing to desire. Wicked things. But I would not have sinned in this way if that person did not cause me to sin by their sin against me. See, listen, others may provoke you to sin, but you, you cause you to sin. You cause you to sin. Friends, these may all be legitimate mitigating circumstances that provoke you in some way. But they are not the cause of your sin. Your own wicked hearts are the cause of your sin. Satan may tempt you. The world may tempt you, but they're not the cause of your sin. Your own decisions to participate in sin are the cause of your sin. Your own disordered desires are the cause of your sin. Certainly sorrow and grief and substances and hormones and mental health issues can weaken your defenses against the flesh, against the world, against the devil. Those can certainly be a point of significant temptation to sin, but none of those things cause your heart and mind to call good evil and evil good. None of those things excuse or justify your sins. None of them. And listen... We are all really good at knowing this and pointing this out when we're dealing with someone else's sin. 
But when our sin is brought up, it's like, well, you know, I have this problem and this thing happened to me. And, and then we're in the next conversation. I'm outraged that you would make such justifications for yourself in the face of your clear sin. Man, if you're going to point to the speck in another's eye, you better be dealing first with the log in your own. Like Adam and Eve, our hearts inexorably lead us to making excuses and shifting blame. John Calvin commented rightly, we are trained in the same school of original sin and are all too ready to resort to subterfuges of the same kind, but to no purpose. For howsoever incitements and instigations from other quarters may impel us, yet the unbelief that seduces us away from obedience to God is within us. The pride within brings forth contempt. So here's the question, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for us? If this is our condition after the fall of man, if we are sinners who flee from God's presence, who try to cover our sins and hide our shame, who shift our blame anywhere but to ourselves, what hope do we have? Let me carry it one step further to something I said at the beginning. If when we hear the word of God, the sound of the Lord God, we only flee, cover, and hide. If we do not confess our sins and repent of our sins, but harden our hearts, if that's our natural reaction to God's voice, what hope do we have? What hope do we have? Well, friends, we're left with God's grace alone as our only hope. God's grace alone. God's gracious act toward us in Christ and by the Spirit is our hope. And in this passage, we begin to get a glimpse of God's gracious salvation through judgment. In giving the curse, which we'll look at next week and we'll look at the promise again the week after that, in giving the curse, he starts with the serpent and the first words that Adam and Eve hear in the face of their rebellion is the curse upon the serpent, which will be the promise to send a Savior to rescue them, to redeem them, to restore them. A promise to save them through the seed of the woman. The Lord had every right. I want you to hear this. He had every right to cast Adam and Eve into eternal hell immediately upon their rebellion. Immediately. To strike them down and cast them into hell. And he has every right upon your rebellion to strike you down and to cast you to hell immediately. But rather, he came to them and patiently questioned them. And in the midst of judgment, promised to save them. Promised to save them. Shockingly, Adam and Eve hid from God, and God sought them out. Please hear that, Sovereign Grace. You did not seek God. No one seeks God. God is the one who sought you. 
You ran and hid and covered and lied and justified, and he sought you out. That's why Jesus came, he said, to seek and to save the lost. You guys remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19? Turn there. Let me end with that in a hopeful passage. <laughs> Luke 19. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. What that means is Zacchaeus is a horrible human being. I'm not saying that just because he works for the IRS of their day. What I'm getting at here is what a tax collector in that day did. Rome was the oppressive nation. You know what a tax collector did? They bid, like at an auction, for the right to collect taxes at a profit so they might fund the Roman government's oppression of their own nation. Imagine some Ukrainian bidding for the right from Putin to take money from Ukrainians to fund Russia's military against Ukraine. That's what a tax collector is in that day. Jesus comes into Jericho. Let's look at the story. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. It means he oversaw other ones and was rich off the backs of oppressing his own people. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on the count of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. This is what you would imagine from a short man to be a tax collector? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> he was small in stature, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Shocking. That the Jewish Messiah, the holy and righteous one, would say to a man like Zacchaeus, I'm going to stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Of course they would. They grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Look, by God's grace, Zacchaeus knew his sin. He knew his transgression. Zacchaeus was dead in his sins and transgressions, just like you and I from birth. But God, who was rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made him alive together with Christ by grace. He was saved. Zacchaeus was blinded by the God of this world, but God opened his eyes to see the light of the good news of the glory of Christ. The same God who spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light, and there was light, that God spoke light be into Zacchaeus' heart, and there was light. 
And by God's grace, Zacchaeus climbed into a tree to see the face of the Lord rather than hiding behind one to avoid him. By God's grace, he confessed his sins openly rather than justifying it or excusing it. By God's grace, he offered to pay whatever restitution was necessary rather than justify himself. Listen, honey, if you need to see all my emails and all my texts from here forward because of what I did against you, you have every right to do it because I recognize my sin. Full restitution. No hiding anymore. No justifying anymore. No more making any excuses. It's just all here. I'm a sinner. It was me, and I'll do whatever is necessary. By God's grace, a man comes to that place. By God's grace, he was looking to Christ and not trying to affix fig leaves to himself. By his grace alone, the Lord did not condemn him in his sin, but announced that he came to seek and save the lost. Do you know Christ? Do you know him? then don't hide or justify or cover your sins. Confess your sins, for he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, all of our sins, not some of them, not most of them except the really bad ones, all of them, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Not to leave you partly unclean, a little defiled by the really bad stuff, to make you completely clean. It is just that God forgive you and cleanse you, precisely because Jesus has paid for your sins at the cross. If you do not know Christ, then I urge you to look to him in faith. And be saved. Confess your sins. Admit your guilt. And look away from yourself to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. He will be pleased to save you. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for the way that your spirit, by the word, exposes our own guilt, sin, We give thanks that you are gracious. We give thanks that you sent your son to seek and save the lost. We have rebelled. We have justified, excused, covered, and hidden. When you speak to us, we have hardened our hearts and turned further from you. And yet in Christ, you pursued us, and you saved us, and made us alive, and gave us the gift of faith, and new hearts, and forgave us all of our sins, and cleansed us of all of our unrighteousness, and clothed us 
with the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing left for us but to give thanks. And so we do, and we pray that we will continually be thankful always in every circumstance. Father, we pray for those who do not know you, those who are still cowering behind their justifications. We pray that you would give them eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.